the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Appreciate everybody being here this morning. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and I think you're going to enjoy um, our study because we're looking at lessons from the first disciples. We started this last week. It's really a two-part lesson because last week we studied uh, Andrew and John, and this week we're going to study Peter and Philip and Nate and Nathaniel, and I think you're going to like it because there's some great life lessons. But just to kind of put us into context, um, Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist, Orthodox Jewish followers. Our life lesson, our application there was that Christianity is not a Jewish sect. It's not a Jewish, uh, what they called at the time, a Jewish cult. Uh, it is a recognition that it is the completion of their Judaism. It's the completion of the Old Testament uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's very significant that they're Orthodox Jewish followers. Uh, second, uh, we looked at the first words of Jesus to his fellow disciples. He asked Andrew and John, what are you looking for? And we talked about why that was such an important question, why that's a relevant question to us. Uh, and then we get into the issue of the answer, which was to be with him. They said, where you're residing. That's our answer. Of what do we want is we want to be where you're residing. Um, so his asked question is, what are you looking for? His answer is to be with you. And our third point was, and so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. And our application there was uh, that time with him deepens and becomes more significant, uh, and that with any other human being, the more we're with somebody, the less we like being with them usually. Uh, but Christ is very, very different. So this week we transition to Simon Peter. We have no clue what Simon Peter looks like. This is one of the actors in a TV uh, or in a movie about Jesus. I thought it was a pretty good guy looking like Simon, so I decided to use it. I have no clue what Simon looked like. We get a couple of things about him, starting in verse 42, and we picked up on this exactly where we were last week, where it says, and he, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which means the anointed one, and he brought Simon to Jesus. So it's referring to him by his birth name, Simon, and we know from Scripture something very significant about him, and it's our first point here that Simon is a common Galilean fisherman. All of the disciples are relatively uneducated, blue-collar, laborers. They're not religious elites. They're not political elites. They're not academic elites, educated elites. They are humanity. They are a swath of what the majority of humanity looks like. Workers toiling, struggling, not getting by on family political connections, family wealth, or anything like that. He's a common Galilean fisherman. All of the disciples of Jesus are going to have the exact same socioeconomic political profile except for one, the one who was educated, the one who was white-collar, the accountant <laughs> among them, was Judas Iscariot. All of the other disciples are blue-collar, common, labor, hard workers, and it's a picture of who Christ wants to focus the gospel on. Uh, it's a, a focus on, on kind of where the message is intended, and that is for everybody. Uh, verse 42 continues. Uh, 
when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which means the rocks. This is the first time Jesus sees him. He knows his name. He knows his lineage, his parents, uh, and he gives him a nickname. Now, I apologize for the sound. We're having all kinds of technological issues. Now, this is significant because it indicates for us that Jesus knew Peter before Peter knew Jesus. It's a reflection of his omniscience. It's a reflection of his understanding. Are we getting that through our speakers? Yes. Yeah. It's coming through our speakers. Yeah. We, I tried not to I'll just run around the other way and tell them. Yeah. Sorry. They're uh, putting the uh, worship next door into our room, so those here alive are getting a, uh, a little feedback. Yeah. Oh, there we go. There we go. We found it. There we go. We think we found it. All right. Now, what's significant about Jesus knowing Peter before Peter knew Jesus is that's true for all of us. Paul gives us the exact same perspective. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And so Paul's perspective was the same as Peter's, which is, wow, this guy knew me before I was even born. Uh, perspective for us, Paul writing in the book of Romans, and I taught this to you in the middle of our study of the life of Paul in the book of Romans, he says, for those whom he foreknew, that's all of us, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, that's all of us, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. So it is a perspective on us as... Um, predestined those of us who were called and it's a recognition that for all of us he knew us before we knew him that's important to start building our foundation of how we became his how we became christians our life lesson is that god knew you and chose you before you were even born nothing you can do now will surprise him a lot of people think when they trip up in life, when there's a sin issue and they do something embarrassing, they're like, oh, no, I now have to go in hiding. Uh, you know, God's ashamed of me. I'm not the right kind of believer. God's disappointed in me. Nothing we do surprises him. He calls us knowing the sinful mistakes we're going to make. He calls us knowing how we're going to be hurt by others. He calls us knowing how different things are going to happen to us, and it's important to realize that we cannot lose our salvation. Nothing we can do will separate us from God unless we run away from him. If we stay close to him, the promise is he stays close to us. Second point, naming by God. When, Paul give, when, when Jesus gives Paul his nickname, Signif sorry, uh, it gives us Simon his nickname, signifies a new beginning for the work of the Lord. We see this uh, repeatedly throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. It's why Abram becomes Abraham. It's why Sarai became Sarah. It's why Jacob, Jacob, we're going to talk about it deeper in a few minutes, becomes Israel. Gideon becomes Jerubbabel. Uh, Daniel becomes Belshazzar. A lot of people in the New Testament get, or in the Old Testament, get a new name, and each of them it signifies a turning point in their life. It's time to go do something different. Did you know that God has already given every single one of us a different name? My parents named me Chris. I like the name. Your parents named you what they are. 
Scripture teaches that God has already given you a new name, and we find out that name when we get to heaven. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus is speaking. As it describes it, it says, God said, I will write on him, that's the believer going into heaven, the name of my God, God the Father, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. Or we could translate that, my new name for him or them. The point of the scripture is, just like Abram became Abraham and Sarai became Sarah, and Simon got the nickname The Rock, God's got a name for us. I'm curious what mine is. I'm curious what it means. I'm curious why I picked it. We don't know from Revelation other than we get a new name, but I just wanted to introduce that for everybody because what happened to Simon is a picture of us. Uh, it's not just unique because Simon is Simon. Now, why give Simon a new name? A couple of reasons. Number one, Simon had a very common name. In fact, some recent research has shown if it's not the most common male name of the first century in Israel, it's certainly in the top three. Among the disciples of Jesus, just 12 guys picked by Jesus, there's another Simon. He went by Simon the Zealot, or we would call him Simon the Terrorist. Jesus has a half-brother named Simon. The guy that carries the cross of Jesus when Jesus can't carry it anymore because he's been beaten and lost enough so much blood, his name is Simon. There's another follower of Jesus named Simon. Scripture teaches that Jesus stayed in a house of a guy named Simon. There's like eight different guys in the New Testament named Simon. We found reference archaeologically uh, to thousands of Simons <laughs> on all kinds of things, so Jesus had to differentiate him. When the other New Testament writers talk about him, they always call him Simon Peter, so it's clear who they're talking about, just like they call Simon the Zealot or Simon the Terrorist by his uh, kind of given name. We know from Scripture, though, it's a nickname. It's an additional name. Luke chapter 6, verse 14, Simon, whom he also named Peter. So his little phraseology there is it's another name. It's a nickname. Uh, we, we would view Peter as a proper name, his friends view it as rock because that's what Cephas means. So he walks in the room and he's like, hey, rock, how you doing? Right? Just like you may have had friends in your youth who went by a nickname. I had friends with all kinds of crazy nicknames. Most of y'all probably had friends with crazy nicknames. That's what the disciples thought about their friend Simon, that rock was just his nickname. They put them together, and now in our culture, it's a proper first name. In Jesus' culture, it's just a nickname. Why give him a new name? Second point is Jesus wanted his nickname to be a reminder of who he should be. Simon means listen. When Jesus talks to him he, and he's in trouble or he needs correction, he just calls him Simon, which means listen. And it's a great name because when Simon messes up and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan's trying to sift you, Simon, you're going to deny me three times. Simon, are you okay? All those references are just Simon. You don't call him rock. When Jesus calls him rock, it's encouraging, it's intimate, it's one-on-one. -on -one. All the disciples don't know what to call him, so they call him both, Simon Peter, to differentiate all the others. <laughs> Scripture's use of his name on this point is insightful because, as I said, it's a reflection. When Jesus wants to correct him, he just calls him Simon. Listen. 
when he wants to refer to him more intimately, he uses the nickname he gave him. But most significantly is the third point, is calling him the rock, I believe, was an ordination of what Peter signified, because he is the leader of the disciples. Jesus picks him to be the leader of the disciples. And by that, it doesn't mean he kind of lords over them and orders them to go do X, Y, and Z. It means he's the one that Jesus talks to if he wants to share the other 12 and doesn't want to talk to him as a group. He'll say, go ask him to do this, go ask him to do that. So Simon became a part of the inner circle and is ordained to be the leader of the disciples. Now, I've talked before about how the Catholic Church has interpreted this over the years. I'm not going to go back into that, but the ordination, I believe, was as the foundation upon which the church is built, because Jesus teaches the 12, those 12 then disciple, and the church builds up on that foundation. Cross-reference, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says to the church at Ephesus in the second chapter, we are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the key point is that second line at the top of the screen built on the foundation of the apostles. So when he says to Peter, you are rock, you are a part of the foundation, he's giving kind of an audio-visual connection of what his name means, what it signifies, what his ordination is. Rock is a part of the foundation that you would then build upon. That's why the nickname was given. It works for all of us. It's a reflection just like he ordained Peter with his spiritual gift of leadership he ordains us with different spiritual gifts. And we've talked before about how we're supposed to use our spiritual gifts to build up the church, not for our own benefit. Uh, the purpose of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 teaches, is to help the whole church. So the disciples' gift, Peter's name, is signifying the foundation of the church. Everybody that comes thereafter has a spiritual gift to further build up the church. And the idea is we are all focused on uh, the edification of those who are in the church to bring others to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Life lesson, you are who you are, where you are, and what you are because Christ Jesus put you there. All of us wish we were God and could change something. We want to change our body type. We want to change our hair color. We want to change our muscle mass. We want to change our intelligence. We want to change all kinds of different things about us. And the reminder we all have got to ground ourselves on weekly, if not daily, is we are who we are because God decided that's what he wanted. And it's a critical understanding of what our circumstances, our body types, our gender, everything about us was intended by God, and we have got to deal with that. Other life lesson, just like with Peter, God does not see you for who you are. He sees you for who you will become. Make no mistake about it. Peter is impetuous. He's got an anger problem. <laughs> he is a bad decision maker. He has a history of bad decision making. He has a history of not getting the obvious. Jesus will teach something and he'll go off in a hard left direction and Jesus has got to bring him back in. So if we were doing a character study on him, we would see all kinds of faults. When Jesus calls him rock, you know, foundation of the foundation, leader of the leaders, he sees him for who he's going to become. 
because after Acts chapter 3, Peter is the greatest leader the church had ever seen, and in many respects, the better leader than Paul, because he was in Jerusalem dealing with all the new believers in Jerusalem. Paul was out being an evangelist. So as a leader after Acts chapter 3, Simon Peter is amazing. Up to Acts chapter 3, he is a working disaster in progress. So Jesus' recognition, he is rock, is a recognition of who he's going to become, not who he was, all the way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, we continue in our verse, uh, up to verse 43 and 44. The next day, he, Jesus, decided to leave for Galilee. And then I gave you the cross-reference to 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. What you've got to understand about Galilee is where it is and what it is. It's the northern part of Israel. You've got Judah. That's where all of the conservative Jewish Jews lived. That's Jerusalem. That's Bethlehem. That's all the inner cities around uh, Jerusalem. You got Samaria to the north. They are despised by the Jews because they're the uh, interbred Jews with other races that live after the Assyrian captivity. And then further to the north, because it's beautiful, there were Jewish immigrants that would still go down to Jerusalem for their temple worship and all the different holidays, but they were viewed as second-class citizens. You know, they're viewed as uh, kind of traders who would sell out for business opportunities uh, around the Sea of Galilee or in some of the hillsides up there, or people that just wanted to go up there because it's more beautiful. It's more kind of rolling hills as opposed to the desert that's in the southern part of the state or the southern part of the country, uh, more, more like around Jerusalem uh, and the places further south. So in Galilee, those there thought it was awesome. Everybody in Judah thought they were second-class Jews, thought they were second-class citizens, thought to some degree they're just one step above the despicable Samaritans. And so the Orthodox Jewish leaders and the Orthodox Jewish members of the faith in the little province of Judah basically looked down on everybody from Galilee. And so that's significant because as we start to see some of these guys, we're going to see some implications of that. Once again, this is my... Uh, uh, guess from a movie of what Philip looked like. We have no clue from any description historically what he looked like. This is another movie about Jesus, and this is the guy that played Philip, so I thought, why not? Uh, it worked for that artist or that director. It can work for me. He's the only disciple with a Greek name. Yay. Philip means uh, phileo, love. Ipsus means horses. Name means lover of horses. That's unique for a Jew because the Jews did not, as a general rule, have occupations with horses. They didn't have horses in their army. They didn't have chariots in their army pulled by horses. The reason why is most of Israel has a terrain that's not good for a horse, and it's definitely not good for a chariot. So they viewed the horses as the things of Egypt and Rome, which they thought were despicable. That's why when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he's riding a donkey. There's no horse to ride because they didn't have horses, and it was also a fulfillment of the prophecy of the book of Zechariah that I'm going to show you in a couple of minutes. But he's riding a donkey because the Jews didn't like horses, and they didn't have people that were lovers of horses. So the fact his parents name him lover of horses must have meant he in Galilee had a horse or they wanted him to have a horse or something because otherwise you don't name a lover of horses if the guy doesn't like horses. So we can presume he's a very unique 
person uh, that is um, had to deal with that name in a Jewish culture. Understand, though, he's the fourth of four people now called who were people rejected by Israel. And it's another picture of who Jesus is going to. Jesus does not go to his disciple, those who excelled in Jewish school, Hebrew school. He doesn't go to those who are Pharisees or Sadducees or even the high priest. He goes to those who are Galileans because that's what Andrew was. That's what John, our writer, is. They both lived on the Sea of Galilee. That's what his brother Peter is. And now Philip is number four from Galilee, and the people he's going to continue to call are going to fall into this whole idea of those rejected by Israel. Matthew, the tax collector, rejected. We could go on down the list. The last part of verse 43, Jesus found Philip and told him, follow me. Picture this for a minute. There's no introduction. There's no discussion of the Hebrew Bible. There's no discussion of prophecy. He just walks up. He knows Philip just like he knew Peter before Peter knew him, and he says, follow me. There's something spiritually going on here, but it's another picture of what it's like for us. There's not an interview process. There's not a proving process. He says, follow me, and just like with your own salvation where he moved in your heart and you went to him, there wasn't a check-the-box process or an interview <laughs> process, and Philip is our picture of that. Now, I want you to understand what he's saying here when he says, follow me. It's not merely the intellectual belief in someone. It's not Jesus saying, come to my school. That's not what he's describing here. When he says, follow me, he's describing something totally different. If I want to study Adolf Hitler, it does not make me a Nazi. If I want to follow Adolf Hitler, that would make me a Nazi. Understand what it means. Number one, to follow someone means to learn about them in order to think like them. Academically, I can learn about Adolf Hitler to learn why he was insane or demonically possessed. But to follow someone means I'm going to learn about them, not just to understand something, but I want to think like them. Number two, if I'm following someone, I want to study them to act like them. I want to get their perspective on other people. I want to get how they talk to other people. I want to get how they lead other people. I want to study them so that I can act like them in a positive way. And then number three is doing something with that. If I follow someone, it is to mimic them, in other words, to do what they do, in order to show others what they are like. When I was a young trial lawyer, I was introduced to, you know, very senior trial lawyers that I really, really liked uh, and admired. And if I wanted to follow someone in my law firm, it meant I wanted to learn about them so I could think about how they thought about their cases and their clients and their economics uh, within the law firm. I wanted to study them so I could try cases like them. I wanted to be successful trial lawyers like them. And so I think you can relate in your own profession or your own aspects of life those that you might have wanted to be more like. For some of us, it was a parent. For some of us, it was a a colleague, a senior colleague. That's what Jesus is trying to get the idea through to Philip when he says, follow me. It's learn him, study him, mimic him. And that's what he's asking of all the disciples. Philip is just the picture. Also note, Jesus found him. Our nomenclature... When we talk about Christianity is, we found Christ. 
That is biblically wrong. None of us found Christ. He found you, otherwise you never would have recognized him. John 1.45 says, Philip found Nathaniel. We're going to talk about him in great depth in a minute. And he told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and by the prophets, Jesus. Now, when Philip says this, a couple of things are going on that are pretty significant. The first thing that's going on is Jesus is the one who gave him that understanding. This indicates he's a Jew that knows his Hebrew Bible. He knows who the Messiah is. He knows what Moses says about the Messiah in Deuteronomy. He knows what the prophets say about him. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, all the prophets. He knows about the coming Messiah, the Psalms. Uh, but the connecting the dots, the two and two together, is what Jesus gives. That's the gift of faith that gives Philip the ability to turn to Nathaniel and say, he's the Messiah. His name's Jesus. He's here. We found him. He's in the flesh. Number two, Philip, like all the disciples, is a picture that Jesus finds us. Our nomenclature, our language frequently confuses the fact that we were lost because people give their testimony, and their testimony is, I found Jesus. They didn't find Jesus. He wasn't lost. We were lost, and he found us and brought us to him, and it's that knowledge of who he is that he gives us in the gift of faith uh, that Ephesians chapter 2 talks about. And then just like with Andrew, we have another picture of Philip here who just cannot stay quiet. Andrew learns, immediately runs and gets his brother in the middle of the night and drags him in the middle of the night back to Jesus. Philip, our apparently longtime buddies with this guy named Nathaniel we're going to study in a minute, and he says, I got to tell my best friend. My best friend has got to know this story so he too, like Andrew, shares his faith immediately. Verse 45. It continues by saying he's the one Moses wrote about, the one the prophets wrote about. He's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. They didn't have last names. They identified people by who their parents were and the city they were from. So this is his full identification, so there's no confusion with anyone else who was ever named Jesus. Now, some people would look at this and go, wait a minute, Jesus gave him enough understanding of his Messiah why didn't he give him the understanding that he was virgin born, right? Why describe him as the son of Joseph? For everybody in Israel, Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph. Doesn't detract from his uh, virgin birth, but Jesus viewed Joseph as his earthly father. He would have called him dad. He would have mourned when he died. He took care of his mother and recognizing how lost she was without her husband, Joseph, when Joseph died before the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then from Nazareth is where they're from. So these identifiers don't detract from the virgin birth. They're just the way everybody would have called him. That's his name. He's the son of Joseph, even with his uh, virgin birth, because that's how culturally they would have viewed his parents. That's how Jesus culturally viewed his parents. Now, We've talked about Simon Peter, we've talked about Philip, let's talk about Nathaniel, because he's going to be our deepest dive here. Once again, we have no clue what this guy looked like. We barely know much about him. This is what a, a, a Hollywood uh, casting agent thought Nathaniel looked like. If it's good enough for a casting agent, it's good enough for my PowerPoint, so that's Nathaniel. He's also known in Matthew, Mark, and Luke by his other name, his last name, Bartholomew. In Hebrew, Bar means son. His daddy's name was the uncommon name, Tholomew. 
So just like you've had friends growing up in life, particularly if you're a guy, and you call them by their last names. When I was a kid, most people went by their last names. In Jesus' day, most people went by their last names. So son of Tholomew is how people in his world referenced Nathaniel. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's called Bartholomew. John, for whatever reason, calls him by his proper birth name, Nathaniel. And I'll give you some application on that in a minute. Verse 46, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked him, asked Philip. In other words, Philip says, we found him, the Messiah, the one promised by Moses, the one promised by the prophets. He's Jesus, the son of, uh, uh, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathaniel, who has no clue who he's talking about, says, what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, let me give you some insight on why he says that. Number one, observation on doubt. Jesus does not call him out for his doubt. Because when he says, can anything good come out of Nashville, he's basically saying, ha, the Messiah's coming out of Nazareth. They would expect the Messiah to come out of Jerusalem, to come out of you know, uh, Jericho, to come out of Rome, to come out of Athens, to come out of somewhere where it's prominent, somewhere where it's big, somewhere where you could be trained to properly be the Messiah. To come out of Nazareth is just as backward as they can be, and you would expect Jesus to cast uh, some kind of aspersion on Nathaniel's doubt. Every single time in Scripture, when a follower of Jesus expresses doubt, they are loved, they are not criticized. There's not a single time when a believer expressing doubt is criticized by Jesus Christ. There's numerous times when non-believers expressing doubt, Jesus calls out as them just ignoring the truth. When a believer has doubt, they are loved, they are not castigated. See also Thomas post-crucifixion, wanting to see the nail scars in his hands and his feet and the knife cut and the sword cut in his side. Exact same reference. Jesus loves him. He doesn't condemn him for his doubt. We go through circumstances. We say, God, why this health diagnosis? Why this financial problem? Why did my spouse have to die? Why do I have to deal with a sick kid? Why do I have to deal with all these frustrations? And so many times we drift into doubt. We say, God, do you not hear my prayers? God, do you not love me? God, what's going on? And then later we come back and we are shamed. We're embarrassed. We're like, oh, how could I be a Christian like that? And we've got to understand that for the believer struggling through their doubt, Jesus sees that as worthy of love, not worthy of criticism. I got a perspective on this as a law school professor. And I did not get this until I started teaching law school. I started teaching law school at the University of Houston in 94, taught uh, insurance for about a decade, got busy with work and family, stopped teaching for a couple of years. Most recently, I've been teaching at my alma mater, Baylor. Uh, but I still teach at the law school at Baylor. What I learned on this point is my best students are those that have constant doubt about what they know. <laughs> and what it is, it's a reflection of their realization of how hard it is that I've taught them. The students that do the worst are those that have no doubt at all. They falsely think it's simplistic. They falsely think they get it. They falsely think this is elementary, the final's gonna be a piece of cake. 
and their false confidence and their arrogance make them the worst people over, you know, 25 years of me teaching law school and my classes. Those that get the high A's, those that get the 4.0 that knock it out are those that come in with massive doubt because they realize the little bit they know and how much they don't know. And they don't live in the center of their arrogance. They live in the fringe of what they don't know. And they struggle with that doubt and it makes them awesome. It makes them understand the stuff in the middle because they're living out on the edge where there's a lot of doubt because there's not absolute certainty in the law or in what I taught them or in some kind of conclusion where the law is going. So doubt in my academic world is a sign of strength. And I think Jesus looks at the same thing. If somebody's really struggling with their faith and they're a genuine believer, it's worthy of, uh, of praise and love, not condemnation. That's my reflection on doubt. Now, understanding Nazareth, back to our verse. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? As I told you a minute ago, it's in Galilee. But the real cities of Galilee are all around the Sea of Galilee. That's Capernaum, that's Tiberias, that's all the cities that were fishing cities or a political military center right on the lake. Nazareth is the equivalent of a one stoplight town in Texas that doesn't have a Dairy Queen. <laughs> it's, you know, fill in the blank on a city that you've driven through that's like that. It's got a stop sign or a stoplight and nothing else. Some abandoned buildings. There's no grocery store. There's no Dairy Queen. It's a one stoplight town, right? It's like, you know, fill in the blank, uh, cut and shoot. It's like out in West Texas, Marfa, right? It's like, uh, you know, Luke and Bach when there's not a music thing going on in town. It's like Green when there's not a music thing going on in town, right? It's just a one-stop light town. There's nothing there, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's Nazareth. Nazareth, at the time of Jesus, the Roman records reflect, had no more than 500 people there. And that's, that's women and children included. So there's maybe 100 or so working men, and that's it other than their families. Best pictures to get the idea of this come from the early 20th century. There's some black and white photographs of Nazareth. I've got one up on the screen from 1905 that give you an idea of the little village, the little hamlet that it was at the start of the 20th century that's pretty close to what it was like at the start of the first century. This is from a couple of years later, a few more buildings, about 1911. This is right after World War I. This is about 1919. And the reason this is significant is it's the only thing there that's remotely close to what Jesus would have seen when he was there as a child growing up, or at least until he was 30. And that's the fountain in the middle of town. If you go there today, it's a tourist trap that's basically a Palestinian settlement. Very few Jews live there, if any. Uh, the fountain in the middle of town, which obviously came way after Christ, uh, is a natural spring that was there in the first century. It would have had different rocks around it, but it still would have been a natural well. Over the centuries, they've built up this thing around it. You can go there today and see it looks exactly the same. But, you know, they'll take you on your tour bus to the Church of Joseph, where they say it was built on Joseph's carpentry shop. Zero archaeological evidence of that. They'll take you to a synagogue underground where they say is a cave that Jesus studied and prayed as a child. Uh-uh, no archaeological evidence of that one. They'll take you to another uh, church out on the edge of town where they say was the, uh, a part of the, the place where the house was where Mary and Joseph lived with Jesus as a young child. 
uh-uh, no historical record of that either. So we've got all these churches that are there where they will take your money to give you a tour, but there is zero historical evidence in Nazareth of anything that was Jesus. And the only thing you could look at is the fountain in the middle of town. So uh, if you go to Israel, I think you can save your time and money and not go to Nazareth. But <laughs> if you want to go, you can see the fountain. Today, about 80,000 people, like I said, most of them are Arab, uh, massive tourist trap. Uh, it's still in the middle of nowhere. I'm not sure why 80,000 people live there because there's not massive industry or agriculture or anything else. So Nathan, Nathaniel says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth, which is like saying, can anything good come out of cut and shoot? Right? That's not where you're educated well. That's not where you're politically focused. That's not where you're you know, vocationally focused. It's just a little bitty town in the middle of nowhere. So it's a common human reaction for Nathaniel to say that about Jesus as you would if there was some allegedly great person coming out of some small town that you just think is a bump in the road. Now, Philip's reaction is fascinating because he mimics what he's already heard from Jesus because he says in response, come and see. That's exactly what Jesus told Andrew and John when they didn't understand what was going on. So the message remains the same. The order is still critical. We want to see the miracle, and then we will come. We want to see the answer to prayer, then we'll be obedient. We want our, you know, uh, golden fleece rained on as we misapply the Old Testament, and then we will do our spiritual gift as he's calling us to do. That's not what he calls us to do. He says, come, and then once we're obedient and can see, then he will show us the miracle. Verse 47, Jesus shows up. Now, so Nathaniel is apparently following Philip. And they're now walking back to Jesus. So this took place, this what good can come out of, can come out of uh, uh, Nazareth, takes place when Jesus is not there. They hoof it back towards him. We don't know if it's one mile, 10 miles, 100 miles, but Jesus was not there, and that sets the stage for this dialogue. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here's a true Israelite, no deceit is in him. Some of your Bibles, if you have your Bible open, says there's no gall in him. Some translations are gall, some are deceit. Gall means, or guile means, deceit or dishonesty. So they're, they're, they're synonyms. So whatever your translation says, it works. The reason that's significant is just like with all the other disciples, Jesus knows him before he knows Jesus. And in his day, to be a man, a Jewish man, an Israelite, in whom there's no deceit, was saying, this guy is very, very different. We know from Bible, we know from extra-biblical literature, the business practices of the day were as corrupt as you can imagine. Their mindset was, if the Romans are going to have us in as subjects, then we are ethically free to engage in immoral business practices to take advantage of those Romans. So if we're going to sell something to Romans, we're going to jack up the price. If the Romans tax us, we're going to lie about what we have to not let them get their taxes. There was a systematic method of fraud as it related to the Romans. Over time, that started to affect how they dealt with other Jews. And the closer you got to the temple, the worse it was. If you were going to change a Jewish shekel, for the, the, the Roman coin, there was a set price. You did it inside the temple, it'd be two or three times higher. 
You wanted to buy a lamb in Jerusalem, there was a set price. You want to go to the temple, it could be 10 times higher. They engaged in improper business practices for their own people, and it's the reason why Christ turns the tables over in the temple when the money changers are trying to sell lambs and trade dollars uh, is because of how corrupt it was. So that permeated not only the temple complex, but the entire system. So when Jesus says to Nathaniel, that's a Jew, that's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, everybody around him is like, whoa, how's that possible in this culture? Nathaniel's answer is, wait a minute, how do you know me? I work really hard for my reputation. I've never met you. Understand what he's saying when Jesus speaks to him in Hebrew, because I think that's the point here, because the point is what's he saying to Nathaniel, and then secondly, what's he saying to us? There's a Hebrew play on words that you don't get in the Greek or the English, but in spoken Hebrew, it jumps off the page at you. Go back to the patriarchs. Abraham's grandson, Isaac's son is named Jacob. Jacob. Jacob is the Hebrew word for deceive. His name is deceive. So when you read Hebrew and he steals from Esau, he steals his blessing, he steals, steals his birthright, Esau says in Hebrew, my brother Jacobed me. That's the word. The Hebrew word is my brother Jacob to me. When he rips off his uncle and he takes things from his uncle, his uncle says, my nephew Jacob to me. His name Jacob is a description of the deceiver he was. Now, how his parents knew that when he was born, great question. Maybe the, maybe the Holy Spirit told him, but his name is deceiver. That's Hebrew. The Hebrew word for deceit is Yaakov. So think about this. When Jesus comes and he speaks to Nathaniel, he's not speaking Greek. He's speaking Hebrew. And in Hebrew, he says, here is a true Israelite. There's no Jacob in him. That's what Hebrew was communicated. John is writing in Greek so all the Greeks can read this. And in Greek, he then translates it Jacob because his Greek audience would go, huh, that makes no sense. But when Nathaniel hears it in Hebrew, it makes all the sense in the world, and he realizes, wait a minute, this guy not only understands the difference between Israel and Jacob, he understands what I've been trying to do my entire adult life, and that is try to be a different Jew and lead a moral, upstanding, right life. So it means Jesus recognizes him for who he is internally uh, as a person, how he thinks. It says in verse 48, how do you know me? How do you know that? Because he's never seen Jesus. He has no dealings with him. As far as you know, he has no reputation with Jesus. And he asks him, how do you know me? It's a great little perspective on God knowing how we think and knowing who we are. But he says there, before Philip called you, Jesus says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Meaning, 20 miles away, 100 miles away, Jesus knew exactly where he was and what he was doing. Why is this a picture? In Israel, the fig tree was the place of meditation and personal Bible study. The Mishnah, the uh, commentary on the Hebrew scripture, tells Jewish men, take your quiet time every day under the fig tree. 
So if you're a Jewish man and you owned a little bitty plot of land with a house on it, you planted a fig tree, you let it grow, and you did your Bible study under it. Why would you do that? Because inside the house is going to be hot. There was no air conditioning. The, the fig tree was about 15 to 20 feet tall. It was about the same width. It sits up off the ground about four to six feet, so you can sit underneath it. It's got big, fat leaves. That's why Adam and Eve wore them as covering because they're wide enough to cover you and those wide leaves give you the ability to have shade. So you sit under the shade, you feel the breeze, you contemplate your scripture. If you've got a little written part of scripture, you would study it. So the fig tree was a place where you went to contemplate Bible. So if he's sitting under the fig tree, it means he's contemplating Bible. We know from the context that he was contemplating Jacob, Jacob, and a particular story because of what Jesus is about to tell him here in just a minute. Now, Jesus knows what he's been thinking. He knows what he's been doing, even though he's 20 miles away or 100 miles away, because he is omnipotent and omniscient. He knows exactly what Nathaniel's been doing. Life lesson, God not only hears our most intimate prayers, he knows our every thought. I am convinced as an adult that God must look at us like we look at two and three-year-old children and two and three-year-old grandchildren when they're up to no good, thinking we don't know that they're up to no good, right? They think no one knows when they go into the kitchen and eat what they're not supposed to eat, right? They think they can talk to their friends or do something we've told them not to do, and they think we won't know because we're not right there watching as far as they know. And as parents, it's comical, the links they go to to try to hide or do things improper or things we told them not to do. And I think God looks at us the exact same way because we think, well, it doesn't matter what I think in my mind. As long as I'm not cussing or people can hear, my language is okay. Or as long as people don't think I'm as big of a creep as they think I am, as long as I'm just keeping my thoughts to myself, everything's okay. And we rationalize these way we think, we rationalize the way that we cuss to ourselves and all the different things we do that we think is purely intimate, not realizing how interconnected to our thoughts our creator is. Nathaniel is a reminder. He knows every thought, he knows every desire, he knows everything that we're contemplating doing before we do it, and it is a reminder of how much he cares about us, and our life can't be us hiding from him and then going to him when we want the genie in the bottle. It's got to be us recognizing and fellowshipping with, fellowshipping with him, knowing the intimacies of all of our thoughts. John 149 continues, Rabbi, teacher, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Now, with our 21st century, 2020 hindsight, we look at it and go, yeah, he was impressed, but it's much deeper than that. When he uses that phraseology, he is echoing what Philip said. This is the Messiah prophesied by Moses and prophesied by the prophets. And the reason why this combination is important is he went to Psalm chapter 2, which to a Jewish audience in the first century was the summary of the Messiah. If you told a Jewish boy in school or you told a Jewish adult, tell me about the Messiah, they would quote Psalm chapter 2. And what they would quote is the verse that combines both of these things. He's going to be the Son of God, and he's going to be the King of Israel. Now, in their mind... It was very different than what Jesus was. In their mind, Son of God would just be somebody really, really close to God that he anoints, 
human being, just pure human, and they would be an earthly military king to throw out those nasty Romans or anybody else that wanted to conquer them. They got that from Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Number one messianic psalm to a Jew. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's God speaking. So that's where the king reference comes from. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. That's where the second part comes from. Today I have begotten you. That was referenced at the baptism of Jesus. Another lesson for another day. But that's where the verse comes from. And the idea of the Messiah is king and son. So when Nathaniel recognizes that, he's saying, that's him, and I know it because I learned it in Sunday school. I learned it in Psalm chapter 2. Other cross-reference, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice so greatly, O daughter Zion, shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Those are the same things. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the cross-reference to Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, but the reference there is the king is coming. That's the reference in the fourth line on your screen. The king is coming. So they had this idea of a son and a king who is blessed, and that's why he calls him Messiah. Jesus responds in verses 50 and 51. Jesus says, do you believe only because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? In other words, if you think that's awesome, wait till you see what I'm about to do. You will see things greater than this. Then he said, I assure you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. At this point, Nathaniel has no clue what he's talking about. He's like, this guy knows me from 20 to 100 miles away and what I'm doing and what I'm thinking and who I am. He's the Messiah and his mind is blown. But Jesus is communicating something really significant. I told you that he was studying Jacob. And the reason we know that is because he references, you're an Israelite, there's no Jacob in you. And then the ending is what he would have been studying. Jesus gives him a word picture. Yeah. He was doing meditation on Genesis chapter 28. Jesus says, what you were just thinking about, I'm going to show you something bigger than that. So here's what he was saying. Genesis chapter 28 is Jacob who is fleeing his brother who wants to murder him. And he's in the desert, he has no belongings, he has to use a rock for a pillow, and he has an image of what's up on the screen. The angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder. And he basically says, oh, and it says the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in it, your seed and the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I've done it. I've spoken to you. This is an unmarried liar and deceiver that just left town after stealing from his brother, knowing he's going to humiliate his father and his father's about to disown him, knowing his mother is his only friend left on the planet. She says, leave before they kill you. And God says at the lowest moment of your life, I'm with you. I'm going to bless you farther than you can ever contemplate. And I'm going to give you an image of the angels working hard on a daily basis to do what I just promised you is going to happen. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is working to complete my promises to you as a person. That's the image of Jacob. 
Nathaniel sitting there under the fig tree trying to contemplate, what does that mean for me? He made a promise to that old deceiver of all, but what's my promise to me? Jesus changed it so critically and so slightly. Jesus says, and I've highlighted at the end, the angels ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. Jesus says, you're going to see a picture of the angels going back and forth to heaven using me as the bridge. It's a picture of the cross of Christ as the bridge upon which the angels are moving up and down. Jesus is the cross of Christ, is the bridge between holy heaven, sinful earth, and the angels are going through Jesus, on Jesus, in order to make it happen. Putting Jesus as the center point of humanity. And so he tells Nathaniel, you're going to see that. You're going to see miracles in the short term and the long term with me as the intermediary between holy heaven and sinful earth. He gives Nathaniel a New Testament perspective on the Old Testament truth because the Old Testament perspective is there's an unseen ladder and the unseen angels are doing God's will on earth. The New Testament perspective is very true. The ladder is the person of Jesus Christ. And at that point, Nathaniel's mind is completely blown. (laughs) Life lesson. God's chosen are in a unique position to see and understand the miracles of his work. There'll be a healing. A pagan just goes, wow, how lucky. The believer says, wow, what an answer to prayer. Business opportunity that's disastrous. The believer goes, you are, the the non-believer says, you are so lucky. (laughs) the believer says, wow, isn't God amazing? The play out is God's chosen are in a position to see the angels going to and from heaven through the person of Jesus Christ. The non-believer chalks it up to fortuity, luck, chance. The believer says, thank you for answering prayer. Thank you for being God. Next point. Jesus gives Nathaniel a millennial perspective on the Messiah. The millennial perspective means Jesus literally coming with the angels from heaven through him as the bridge to the sinful world. Daniel chapter 7 gives us the idea of watching the night vision. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came in the ancient days and they brought near before him. Then he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples, the nations, the languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel was seeing what we call the millennial reign, the end of revelation that Greg's going to preach upon sometime before Thanksgiving. Cross-reference to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels and will reward each according to his works. That's the second coming of Christ. So he says to Nathaniel, short term, New Testament perspective, Old Testament theology. Future is the millennial reign. And he says to Nathaniel and to all of us, you're going to see it all. You're going to see God work in your life in a short-term way. You're going to see God work in the future because you're going to be with him as he returns, and it's going to be incredible. Nathaniel is a picture of the good man, full of faith of his youth, who still needs Jesus to be right with God. So many people look at others who don't know Jesus Christ, but they're really, really good people. They, like Nathaniel, are honest in their business dealings, honest in their relationships, honest in their communication. 
And like Nathaniel, they may be very obedient in their faith. They meditate, they pray, they study their scriptures. Nathaniel is a picture that that person still needs Jesus Christ to be right with God. You can be as good as you want to be. You can be as faithful as you want to be on something else. Scripture makes it crystal clear. The one bridge is the bridge from holy God to sinful man through the person of Jesus Christ. It's the only way they can be reconciled without messing up both of them. Nathaniel means gift of God. El is God. Nathaniel is gift of. So Nathaniel is gift of God. So if you wanted to translate John three sixteen in Hebrew, it would be for God so loved the world that He Nathaned His one and only Son. That would be inserting Hebrew into the middle of that English slash Greek text. Our life lesson then is our life. Our circumstances, our very salvation are all gifts from God. We approach God as a gimme, gimme, gimme genie that we just want to answer our needs of the day. I really like listening to Carol pray because Carol gets this point. Carol's prayers are all praises, right? If there is a health issue, Carol doesn't pray solve the health issue until she thanks God for the health issue and what God's going to do with that health issue. Ministry, doing all kinds of things. Carol's got this point down great. Thank you, Carol. Uh, All of us need to pray that way. The prayers come, the praises come before the laundry list. We've got to saturate our prayers with this point, which is realizing Nathan, he's given us all these gifts. We've got to praise him for them, even if we don't like the tiny circumstance we're in. I'm going to end on three points, caption our three guys. Number one, God calls us to begin a new work, not just to keep doing our old work. That's Simon Peter. Simon Peter was a fisherman. He's going to become a fisher of men, the leader of the disciples. Point number one, God calls us to change using our spiritual gifts. Point number two, to do so, we must fully follow him. It's not a Sunday thing. It's not a when we're in trouble thing. It's an all the time thing. We've got to fully follow him. That's the picture of Philip. And our final point is, and if we do so, he'll give us a new perspective on our past, Jacob, our present, answers to prayers and miracles, and number three, our future, the coming millennium. That's Nathaniel. Those are my three application points for Simon Peter, for Philip, for Nathaniel. Understand why I like these three guys so much? That's good, good stuff. Next week, the first miracle, the painting up on the screen is the painting that was behind my dining room table. When I did Zoom class and the picture was behind me and somebody said, what's behind you? That's it. I'll tell you next week why I love that painting. I'm going to tell you next week why John, as he describes the the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, starts with the wedding feast at Canaan. It's it's, uh, John chapter 2. We're going to tackle it next week. Uh, Let me close this up in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for the the amazing lessons through these three guys that you called to be close to you. We pray that you would use this to encourage us, to motivate us, to strengthen us, to focus us, to be the child, the son, the daughter that you want us to be, to nurture your other children, the friends we have who are other believers, and most importantly, to reach out 
to those that are around us that still don't know who you are. And we just pray this week for those opportunities, for that strength, for that encouragement, not for our honor and glory, but exclusively through you, through your wisdom, through your opportunities, through your power and glory. Through these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all and God bless. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.